0: Romans chapter 6, shouldn't listen to my old man. One of you got it anyway, so. You've seen NBC's The More You Know Public Service announcements, probably. They began airing on the network all the way back in 1989 as an attempt to raise public awareness about important issues. Romans 6 is a sort of More You Know campaign. Paul keeps using the words know and knowing. He uses the word believe several times as well. You see the word know used in verses 3 and 16 and the word knowing in verses 6 and 9. In fact, there are three key words in this chapter. Know, reckon, and present. Uh, They are a good outline of the chapter in terms of its uh, content, if you want to remember those three words. Know is used in the sense of to believe as true without doubting. It's a fact. It's something that you can know. Reckon is found in verse 11. It means to count or compute or take into account. Uh, It's obviously a banking term. It's the term you'd use to indicate that you have more than sufficient resources to cover your expenses. And so if you go out. Uh, after study tonight and you want to buy something uh, you can reckon that you have enough money because you know what's happening in your bank account you've got plenty of money present is found in verse 13 and it simply means to yield now Paul was saying that when you take into account what you know to be true you're going to find that you can yield to God rather than to sin that's the that's this whole chapter in a nutshell and so when you Uh, take into account what you know to be true, you're going to find that you can yield to God rather than to sin. Or we could put it this way, you cooperate with God in His work of sanctifying you day by day, making you more like Jesus, making you holy day by day. And So let's see what it is we are to know. It's really pretty remarkable. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... Were baptized into his death. The idea behind the Greek word for baptized is either to immerse or to overwhelm something. The Bible uses this idea of being baptized into something several different ways. When a person is baptized in water, for example, that's kind of the first thing that we think about, they are quite literally immersed with water. When they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, as they are in Acts chapter 1, they are spiritually immersed with the Holy Spirit. We speak of Him being poured out upon them. When they're baptized with suffering, Mark chapter 10, verse 39, for example, they're overwhelmed with suffering. So as you see, you can be baptized in a spiritual sense, or some say a figurative sense, but we're really dealing with things of the Spirit here. So there's a spiritual sense of baptism, being immersed in something, as well as a literal physical sense of, as in water baptism. When Paul said we were baptized into Christ, he meant that we are spiritually immersed into Jesus the moment we are justified. Then he goes on to say that our water baptism is a public uh, outward testimony of the Lord's inward spiritual work. And so uh, we're baptized into Christ identified with Him, immersed in Him. We'll see more about that in a minute. Uh, And then it's symbolized by water baptism. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is a good single-volume Bible commentary, puts it like this. Those guys say, By faith believers are baptized or placed into Christ and thereby are united and identified with Him. This spiritual reality is then graphically witnessed to and pictured by believers' baptism in water. The one baptism by water is the visible picture of the spiritual truth of the other baptism identification with Christ. While we're talking about baptism, uh, we always remind you that water baptism does not save you. Water baptism does not even complete your salvation. It is simply a public testimony you give that you are saved. That's not to minimize its importance After all, it is a command that we're baptized. It's been said by many commentators and preachers that the idea of an unbaptized believer is something foreign to the New Testament. And it would seem from both the Bible accounts and from early church history that folks were baptized pretty immediately after receiving Jesus Christ. Uh, I've been trying to figure out how we could do that more here, Uh, but um, it's pretty cold sometimes around here, you know, so... Uh, but I know uh, John Corson up in Applegate, Oregon, they have an outdoor baptismal. And in the middle of winter, he takes people down there. If I, I guess it proves you're really a Christian, you know, you're a little bit crazy, too. But, uh, I, you know, it's kind of hard because baptism, we're so careful to, to, to be honestly, you know, uh, brutally honest with people. that You don't have to have, be baptized to be saved. It's se- something separate from salvation because there's so many crazy groups out there. Uh, but we don't want to minimize the importance of it either. And so uh, you know I think we need, to, we need to think more about our responsibility to baptize folks as soon after as they receive Christ as possible. Uh, and so maybe we'll figure out uh, a better method for that. But, uh, so if you're a Christian, you've never been water baptized, uh, it's an easy command to keep, and, uh, it, but it is a command, and you need to be baptized. So think about that. Well, Paul wants you to know is that since you were baptized into Christ Jesus and therefore identified with Him, then you were baptized, he says, into His death. It is a spiritual fact. It is a spiritual reality. So in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. As far as God is concerned, when Jesus died, you died with him. And when Jesus rose, you rose with him. We might find it hard to get a handle on this, but these are the facts. And so we spent a long time talking in previous chapters about how God sees us in Adam, how Adam represented us, and what Adam did affects us. And now we're, and we also saw that what Jesus did affects us. And so the Lord is saying the spiritual truth here is that when Jesus died, uh, and, and you become a Christian now, you died with Jesus on the cross. And that's going to have a profound effect on your life in just a moment. Paul applies this to our daily walk. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It isn't just that raising Jesus brought glory to the Father. That's true. I mean, it was glorious to see Jesus alive. Jesus was raised, it reads, by the glory of the Father. His glory is the sum total of all of His wonderful attributes. In this case, we could reduce it down to the fact that because God is both holy and uh, because God is love, His glory demanded that the sinless Son of God be raised in triumph over sin and death uh, because He went to the cross voluntarily paid for the sins of the human race, uh, and did so uh, as a sinless individual. And so at the cross, love and justice meet. God's holiness is satisfied and God's love is fulfilled so that he can offer salvation to lost mankind. And so this is the glory that we're speaking of here, uh, that God would act according to his nature. And his, his nature, of course, is to be holy and to judge sin, and so sinners deserve death. Uh, But his nature is also love. He loves lost mankind. And all of that came together on the cross. And so, of course, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father so that now God is in a position to justify lost men and women. Remember when we're uh, in this section, we're dealing uh, in verses, in chapters 6 through 8, with what happens next, we might say, after we've been justified. We spent four chapters talking about justification by faith. Now, Paul said, what happens next? Do we continue in sin? And he's developing the idea that, no, God begins to work on us on a daily basis and uh, he's setting us up for how it is we can cooperate with God and say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Paul describes this Newness of life in verse five, he says, "For if and the word should be since, we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, this is a really a new illustration. We don't see it because the, the word uh, is much richer in the original language, I'm told, than we uh, understand it to be. It's the word united. And it's a word that doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. Scholars say it means to be sown or planted at the same time, or it can mean what sprouts or springs up together. So obviously it's applied to plants and trees that are planted at the same time and that sprout and grow together. The name would be given to a field of grain also that was sown at the same time and where the grain sprung up and grew simultaneously. The picture is actually even more intense. In some instances, two trees may touch and begin to overlap and begin to actually grow together. They become a single top growing from two separate trunks. Or we might graft two plants or trees together so that they become one. And so it's all reminiscent of Jesus telling us that he is what? The vine and we are the branches. And so Paul says we are united with Christ Uh, just like a vine is united with the branches where that connected to him so united together that they can be said to be one plant, one tree, one person. And, and the, the idea here, remember the key word is no, Paul is telling us this is true, that it's a spiritual fact. And the sooner we know that it's true, the sooner we will begin to reckon it and walk in newness of life as we should. And so these are things that we need to know. We are dead in Christ. We are raised to newness of life in Christ. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Knowing this, it's an appeal to know something that is already true, already a spiritual fact. There's nothing to do, just something to realize. And so what's interesting to me about this chapter where we're uh, learning about how we cooperate with God to defeat sin in our lives, Paul says there's not much to do as much as there is to know. Uh, You know, we immediately go to discipline and things that we have to do in order to defeat sin. And Paul says, let's start with what is true of you, uh, because... Uh, you're already dead in one important sense. And when you realize that you're dead, it's going to have marvelous consequences in your daily battle uh, with the world and the flesh and the devil. And so knowing this, we're to realize that our old man was crucified with Jesus. The world uh, word old, rather, isn't the normal word for chronological age. It's instead a word that is used of something that has been destroyed. So he's saying that your... Old man, your destroyed man was crucified with Jesus. But who or what is this destroyed old man and how did he get that way? Well, the old man has to do with our natural birth. It is what we are at birth. It is everything we inherited from Adam. It is who we are as human beings descended from Adam and Eve. Adam affected both my standing before God and my state in the world. My standing before God and my state in the world, we spent a long time talking about Adam, you remember, and how he represented the human race and and when Adam sinned, it affected my standing before God. now I, I can't come into the presence of God. I like Adam am, uh, you know have to hide myself from God because I 'm the enemy of God when I 'm born into this world. Uh, and I find that there's something wrong with me. It's interesting. When you study psychology or philosophy, as I did at the University of California, I didn't realize it at the time, but everybody's trying to answer the question of what's wrong with the human race. Uh, very rarely does somebody come along and say, well, let's study normal people and see what's right with the human race because there's so few normal people. Uh, but you know, all of it is an attempt to say there's something wrong. People hurt other people they they do terrible things just when you fought the war to end all wars other wars are going on to end all wars and and there's no end to it just when the cold war ends and you think man we are on top of the world then you find there's a war on terror uh and so there's something wrong and that's our state in the world so my standing with god is no good Uh, i you know i i don't I don't know God, I, I'm separated from God, and I find that my, there's something actually wrong within me as well. And so my natural state and standing as a human being is what is meant by the old man. It's what I was born in Adam. Now in chapters 1 through 4, we saw how my natural standing gets changed by God when I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer in Adam, I'm in Jesus, and that gives me a new standing, a new position. And so uh, Paul sees me, or God sees me as, as being in Jesus now. Uh, so, and, and he even calls Jesus the second man. And so Adam was the first man. He was fleshly of the world. Jesus is the second man. He's heavenly. He's eternal. And I am now standing with him. And so when God sees me, when he sees you, if you're a Christian, if you can wrap your head around this. He sees you in Jesus Christ, loves you just as much as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. You have all the access and uh, you know uh, to God that his son, Jesus Christ, has. So here in Romans six, Paul seems to be focusing on my natural state, or as we sometimes say, my sin nature. So he dealt with my standing in the first four chapters. I've been justified. Now, what about the state that I'm in? Do I continue in sin? What about my sin nature? Well, here's the point. Because my old man was crucified with Jesus and is dead, the body of sin might be done away. That's a mouthful. And here's what it means. The body of sin is not the old man. Now, I hope you're following this. It took me years to figure it out. uh, And I still don't know if I can... But there's a lot going on here. There's the old man, what we sometimes call our sin nature, my natural state as a human being, that's been crucified, that's dead, that the body of sin might be done away with. So there's two separate things, two distinct entities. What is this body of sin? Well, it is what is elsewhere called in the Bible the flesh, what we commonly call the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, it's a little hard to define and commentators are all over the place. It's not the physical body itself. It involves my physical body. That's how... I interface with sin. That's how I interface with the world. But the physical body has needs and they are neutral. And so it's not just the fact that I have a body. Because after all, in eternity, I will have a physical body as well. But it will not have the flesh. It will be made of flesh. It, you know, this is why the terminology struggle, You know, I'm going to have a body forever. But I won't have the flesh. I won't have the body of sin. The flesh is something I find at work within my physical body. The best I can say is that it's a tendency and inclination, impulses to use my physical body in sinful ways. And those of you who came to know Christ later in life, uh, immediately you sensed a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. You found that there was a new man within you, a new nature that was open to God and seeking God and in love with God, but that there was also this other principle at work still leading you to sin. Uh, and sometimes we refer to that as the old nature. And, and uh, you know I still do too, but technically that's not really the sin nature. The sin nature has been killed. The old nature has been killed so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, the flesh is a problem in my daily life because it has been expertly trained in sinful habits by three sources. First, the old man trained and imprinted himself on the flesh. Second, the world, the world system, and its spirit of rebellion against God can have a continuing influence on the flesh. And third, the devil seeks to tempt and influence the flesh towards sin. The old man trained the flesh. The world system appeals to it. The devil influences it. But what if our old man is dead? Well, if that's the case, and it is, because Paul said, Jesus died, you died. He rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. When he died, your sinful nature was crucified with him and you received a new nature. And because of that, you might be able to do away with this body of sin. In other words, with my old man dead, I just might be able to do away with the flesh. Done away or do away is the key term. It means to render inoperative. It's a word used to describe making something ineffective by removing its power of control. It means to disconnect. And so if something was happening and, and you know, if there was some kind of an emergency and, and you, you could pull the plug on something, there would be a disconnect. The, 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 the machine or whatever it was, it could still work. Those are Some of you guys that work in shops, you know, you have these big levers and stuff where you can turn stuff off so that your whole body isn't sucked into the machine and you're crushed to death like a cartoon, you know, that kind of thing. The machine still works, but you're able to disconnect it. So that uh, there, and no matter how much you try... Uh, it, it, you can't turn it on because there's a disconnect with the power source. Whenever I do electrical work at my house, I ask Edison to come out and turn off the power at the pole because I'm afraid of electricity. Well, I actually I don't, but I, I turn off every breaker possible, you know. And then uh, then you find out some, but because some crazy guy probably named Fred wired my house, you know. Do you ever come on? Really, you guys, some of you guys understand this. You're doing a project and you think, hey, what's that? Where did that wire come from? And it's Uncle Fred. Uncle Fred came over and did somebody's wiring 25 years ago. Uh, you know, and Uncle Fred doesn't know anything about electricity. And you know, he's got. There's. It's a wonder that your house didn't burn down and stuff. You know. And so I just I shut everything down and I test it and retest it. And uh, my dad had his own methods for doing this. He was he was the two finger kind of a guy. <laughs> remember those days? I remember my dad one time almost getting blown up trying to turn the furnace on at the shop. He was one of those guys that tested for gas by lighting a match, you know. And I don't know how they lived, my brothers and my dad, you know. But one day, seriously, I mean, it was wintertime at the shop. that's on Baseline Avenue down in San Bernardino across from Bank of America. And uh, he went to turn on the the, uh, furnace and he would had the gas on for a while. And it was one of those where he actually stuck his head inside the furnace and he lit a match in there. And it blew him probably 10 feet away. It singed all of his hair. It was fantastic. Uh, I mean, he lived through it, so you know, there was no lasting date. But that was my family. That's how we tested things. You know, we just, hey, I wonder if this is hot. Oh, yeah, it is, you know, and stuff. I wonder if this is loaded. Uh, you know, it's just crazy stuff. I remember my dad. I mean, he was in the military. He was a, he's a manly man, my dad. I, I you know, but uh, I remember the first time they got, uh, this is a long, long story. I'll just tell you the, the, the end of it. Uh, why, I'm not going to tell you why they got guns, but they got, uh, they got automatics. Uh, and, uh, you know, handguns, and we went out in the front yard to shoot him, of course, that's what you did in San Bernardino, and uh, my dad apparently forgot his training, and and he had his thumb up over where the slide came back, and it just about cut his thumb off, you know, Uh, those of you who've made that mistake, not only that, he dropped the guns flying and bouncing all over the ground and stuff, so it's a miracle, you know, that I'm here, Uh, but anyway... Uh, render in, uh, there are things that you can do to render something inoperative. It still could operate, but it doesn't because you have made a decision or done something to render it inoperative. The thing done away with still exists, but it can be considered dormant. You don't have to worry about it anymore unless somebody plugs it back in. Now, since my old man is dead. Now, Paul says He's not, he didn't tell you to put him to death. He doesn't say, five years from now you will have disciplined yourself so that you've strangled your old man to death. You know, it's not, a, it's not a like celebrity death match where you are trying to kill your old man. Paul says, no, your old sin nature was crucified and that's not something you could do anyway. You can't crucify yourself. Even if, you want, even if you're trying to misunderstand this on purpose, he says, no, you can't crucify yourself That's something that happened at the cross, and so your old nature is dead, and because of that, since that's true, you don't need to respond to any impulses or inclinations from your flesh which continues to haunt you. When I know my old man was crucified with Jesus, it removes the power of control from the flesh. There's a disconnect. Remember, again, we're talking about second-stage salvation, what the Bible calls sanctification. It is God working on me to make me righteous and me cooperating with that work. David Guzik puts it like this. He says, God calls us in participation with him to do actively day by day with the flesh just what he has already done with the old man, crucify it, make it dead to sin. But when we allow the flesh to be continually influenced by the old man's habits of the past, the world and the devil... The flesh exerts a powerful pull towards sin. Now, until my physical body is redeemed at the resurrection or the rapture, I'm going to struggle with the flesh. It remains with me. But my knowledge of the crucifixion of my old man effectively cuts the power cord. Thus, we should no longer, he says, be slaves of sin. I need no longer yield my physical body over to the control of the flesh. It's not a matter of feelings, but of the fact that I have been crucified with Jesus Christ. And verse 7, he says, For he who has died is freed from sin. This is another metaphor. I've been trying to find out if anybody has ever calculated how many metaphors Paul uh, used in his ministry. I mean, he's got illustrations like crazy. He suggested that the flesh be seen as a master that enslaves me to sin. In the Roman Empire, death freed a slave from his master's control. Obviously, in any empire it would, but in the Roman Empire, certainly it did. The master could bark all kinds of orders, but the slave could no longer respond because he or she was dead. In the 1960 film Spartacus, Kirk Douglas played the escaped slave who led a brief but widespread rebellion in ancient Rome. At one point in the movie, Spartacus says, Death is the only freedom a slave knows And that is why he is not afraid of it. We are set free from sin, Paul says, singular, from the sin nature, because the old man has died with Jesus on the cross. I'm no longer his slave. Instead, a new man, a free man, lives. And so God is now working in me every day to make me holy. It's a work I can cooperate with. I can and should take into account what I know to be true, that my old man is dead, so I don't need to serve the flesh, but can instead present myself to God to serve him. And so Paul says this is what you need to know your sin nature is crucified, the flesh continues, but you can consider it disconnected. And when there's a temptation uh, from the flesh, uh, you know, when the world or the devil or whatever is, is tempting you. Then you need to know these things and remember these things and say, "Hmm, my old man is dead, my old nature is dead, and so this that's left over, I don't have to plug that back in. I can leave that unplugged, and instead yield myself over to God. Uh, and it's it's really powerful stuff, you know. And Paul says this is what you you know. Uh, and if you don't know it, you need to know it. And he says it's not a matter of of." You know, figuring it out, he says, this is a spiritual fact, a spiritual reality that we plug into. And as we go on, we'll see that because we know this, then we're able to reckon it. We're able to account that this really works, that this is God's plan. And when those moments come, when I can yield myself to sin, I instead yield my members, my physical body, my mind and my will and my emotions. I yield them over to God instead. Uh, Now, Paul understands the struggle. We'll see it in chapter 7. It's a very intense struggle with the flesh. Uh, But he'll say in chapter 8 that we can overcome it uh, by the Spirit. And so, uh, good stuff, exciting stuff, uh, sin-killing stuff. As they say, you'll never be sinless, but you can sin less. In fact, you can, from a philosophical point of view, you can say, well, I don't have to sin at all. And there, are, there have been people in the history of the church who believe and teach a kind of a sinless perfection in this, uh, uh, you know, in our walk. That, that's never going to happen. The Bible doesn't teach that because we always have this body of sin. But each time we can disconnect it. We can consider it disconnected and have victory over the flesh uh, and, um, and keep it in its place. All right.